Eating out. It should be a relaxing, enjoyable experience. No, 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 no. On the side, on the side. Until someone like this guy shows up. You're not the sharpest knife in the drawer, are you? A rude and demanding customer. Okay. All you have to do is listen to what I say and okay. just do it and then we're good. Okay. Okay. Jeremy is an actor we hire. In real life, he's also a part-time waiter. But today, Jeremy is literally turning the tables, being served and serving up insults. You're way slow, way slow. We're watching with our hidden cameras at Six Brothers Diner to see how people react. This is all dirty. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. The accommodating waitress, Ashley, is also an actress working for us. Bring me some hot water. Hot water? Really hot okay. water, because this is dirty silverware. It doesn't take long when, from several tables away, this woman, Fabiana, comes charging, physically confronting our rude customer. Excuse me. Right away. Excuse yes. me. Can you be a little bit more respectful to her? I mean, really, you're treating her so poorly, and everybody's noticing. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm, just trying, I'm just trying to get some food. I totally wouldn't be surprised if she spit on your food. Learn how to treat people. Wow. I'll be careful at the restaurant today. <laughs> How many of you guys have seen that show on ABC, What Would You Do? Uh, we started watching that uh, last year, and it's really fun. They put people in all these different situations, and then they uh, see what they would do in those certain different scenarios. And that's the name of our um, message we're beginning today. We're going to be looking at the next several weeks, except for Friend Day next week. So take out your Bibles, turn to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, as we continue our verse-by-verse -verse study through the Gospel of Mark. We're up to chapter 14. We just have three chapters left. Uh, chapter 14 is the longest chapter. It's like 70-some verses. So we're going to break it up into two or three weeks, talking about what would you do. And here's the question I want you to think about this morning. What would you do if you were encountering Jesus in his last few days on this earth before he goes to the cross, what would you do? How would you respond to him? Because as we jump into chapter 14 today in the next few weeks, you're going to see Jesus come in contact with a lot of different people. And you're going to see a lot of different responses, some good, some not so good. And I want you to think about what would you do in that situation? And how do you respond to Jesus today in different scenarios that you encounter him in, in your life? And that's what we're going to be talking about with what would you do? We're going to look at several different scenes that take place as we follow Jesus. We kind of take a walk with him to the cross uh, in this chapter and, and going right into the end of this book of, of Mark. And uh, we're going to look at different scenes and scenarios and how people respond. We're going to look at two of them today. And the first one is this. We're going to see a scene that takes place in Bethany where we see Jesus is worship. The response is worship. So you have that in your notes if you're taking notes. The first scene today is in Bethany where we see Jesus worshiped. And we pick up our reading in chapter 14 beginning in verse 1. And it says, After two days it was the Passover... And the feast of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take Jesus by trickery and put him to death. And as we've been walking chapter by chapter through the book of Mark, this is what the religious leaders have been wanting to do for a long time. They've been wanting to trick Jesus, catch Jesus, get rid of him. They don't agree with him. They don't like him. They don't believe he's the Messiah. And so now it's, it's really coming you know, to a head here, and they're like, how can we do this? But verse 2 says, but they said, not during the feast, not during the Passover, lest there be an uproar of the people. 
And this is just a, a couple of days here before the, the Passover meal. And people are, are flooding Jerusalem this time of year. The pilgrims are coming uh, to celebrate their most festive uh, ceremony, which is the Passover, something they had been celebrating as a Jewish people for some 1,300 years at this point. Um, Palm Sunday had just happened, so it's probably Monday now is what we read in verse 1 and 2. The people are excited about Jesus because remember on Palm Sunday he came in and everybody was saying Hosanna and, and worshiping him. And, and so the religious leaders are like, well, if we're going to trap him and we're going to try to get rid of him, let's not do it right now during the Passover because the people might get really upset by that because a lot of the people like Jesus. Now those same people are going to turn on him as we're going to see in just a couple of chapters. But the religious leaders in verse 2, they feared the people. And isn't it interesting they're plotting to kill the Son of God, and they're more concerned about the people than fearing God. They're more afraid of what the people think and what the people might do than what God might do or how he feels about his Son being crucified. And what's crazy is, even though in verse 1 and 2 they say, let's not, let's not try to do this during the Passover because of the fear of the people, even though that was their intention and their plan, as we're going to see in a couple of weeks, they're going to do just exactly that. They're going to arrest Jesus and crucify him during the Passover. And so even though they had their own plans and ideas, they end up doing it anyway because it was part of God's divine plan. And it's been said many times, what man proposes, God disposes. Because God has a will and a sovereign plan, and it's going to be his, the way he plans it. Amen? And we're going to see that play out. Now, Mark just kind of mentions this in verse 1 and 2. But then when we get to verse 3, the scene changes. And so that's just sort of setting the stage for the next couple of chapters as the religious leaders are going to try to trap Jesus. But in verse 3, the scene changes to Bethany. And actually, Mark here, don't get confused, because he's actually going to take us back a few days in time to another scene and scenario that happened even before Palm Sunday and the Passover. And we read about it in verse 3. And it says, and being in where? Bethany. In Bethany. This was a small town just outside of Jerusalem. At the house of Simon the leper, Jesus sat at the table and a woman came having an alabaster flax of very costly oil of spikenard. She broke the flask and she poured it on Jesus' head. John's gospel gives us a lot more detail. We're studying Mark, and so we're not going to go over there, but you can read it later. But John's gospel tells us that this scene in Bethany took place six days before the Passover. So probably the Friday before Palm Sunday. The woman in this story, John tells us, is Mary of Bethany. This is the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Lazarus, who Jesus rose from the dead. He was friends with these people. It was in the house, the scripture says here, of Simon the leper. But what it probably really should say is Simon the once leper. Because most scholars believe this was probably one of the lepers that Jesus healed that we read about. And now he's inviting him to the house. Because if he was still a leper, there wouldn't be a meal happening at his house. I can assure you of that. So here you have Lazarus who Jesus rose from the dead. You have Simon that was once a leper. And you know, that's what he was known for his whole life. Simon the leper. And so even once Jesus healed him, they were just like still calling him Simon the leper. And he probably was like, used to be. Not anymore, but that's the scene, and that's where Jesus is at. But the focus is here on this anointing of this fragrant oil, this spikenard oil that is very fragrant and very costly that is poured upon Jesus by Mary of Bethany. Now, it was very common during this time in the Middle East for people, when they would invite someone to their house for a meal, and people would come to the door, they would have some kind of fragrant oil, and they would kind of put it on their head, and they would anoint them with that. And there was a very practical reason for that. 
Because in those days, unlike today, they did not have running water. They did not have showers. They didn't have all the soaps and they didn't have all the prunes and the things that we have today. And, you know, people, quite honestly, were pretty stinky. They really were. You know, and when you came in the house, you know, you needed a little bit of fragrance because you didn't want to smell everybody else's stink, you know? And so that was pretty common to anoint them. You know, wouldn't it be nice today if we could sometimes do that for some people, you know? Just go, can I just anoint you for a moment? You know, I... I had this happen to me just a couple of weeks ago. I went bow hunting, and uh, we were up in the steamboat area, and I was hunting with a couple other guys, and we were a little ways outside steamboat. We wanted to go into town and get some supplies and get some, some uh, food, and so we, we jumped into the truck, and as we pulled out, and we had about a 20-minute drive into steamboat from where we were hunting at, and I'm not telling you where because it's a good spot, but anyway, that's another story. And so we jumped into the truck, and, and just as we were getting ready to get on the highway, there was a guy that had a backpack, and he was walking, and he was hitchhiking. And there were three of us in the truck, and we had plenty of room for one more person, and we could tell he was probably trying to get into steamboat. So the guy that was driving said, you know, I think we should pick him up, give him a ride. And we were like, sure, why not? Now understand, we were hunting we had weapons. This guy was in more trouble than we were if he tried to do anything, okay? And so he gets into the truck, and as soon as he gets in, you know, he sits down, and immediately it's like, whoa, we changed our mind. This guy, we found out, we got to talking to him. He was from London. He had the accent. He had started in Canada and was hiking the Continental Divide Trail from Canada to Mexico by himself. I don't think he had had a shower since he left Canada. And we were probably a couple of months into it. And so he sat down, you know, and I'm in the back seat. And I'm like, ah, can I please anoint him with something? But, you know, it was all good. And we had, we had a good time. But that, that's what was going on here. But Mary takes this a step further in this story. She doesn't just anoint Jesus at the door. John goes into great detail and tells us that she pours the entire bottle of this spikenard, this very costly fragrance, all over Jesus. And she begins to wipe and clean his feet with the hair of her head. It, the Bible says it's an alabaster flask of spikenard. It was this fragrance. It was probably an heirloom maybe in her family that they were saving for a special occasion, and maybe they would just use a drop or two every once in a while. It was very costly, as you're going to see in a minute. But the Bible tells us she takes the whole thing and, and pours all of it onto Jesus and, and begins to wipe, you know, as I said, the feet with her hair. And many scholars have noted this story, and people have recognized this story for centuries and said what Mary did was an incredible act of worship upon Jesus, her Savior, as she was anointing him with this oil. She was pouring out not just oil, but her love for Jesus, her admiration for Jesus, her worship and praise for Jesus. And I want to suggest to you this morning that, Jesus, that what we see in the story of Mary worshiping Jesus, she worshiped Jesus in three practical ways that ought to challenge us this morning as well. And you have them in your notes. First of all, in this story, she worshiped Jesus personally. She didn't take, you know, the ointment and, and give it to one of the disciples that were in the room there too and said, hey, would you take this and would you pour this on Jesus for me and do that? No, she did it herself. She poured it out upon Jesus. She did it personally. And that's a great picture for us in our worship today, church. No one can worship Jesus for you. Let me say that again. No one else can worship Jesus for you. It has to be personal. Something you do personally for Jesus. And I want to just say this. I want to commend 
so many of you in our church who are growing in your worship. I love what Gary did this morning. I mean, Gary's been here since January. Is Gary not an incredible blessing to have as our worship leader? And what I love about Gary is he's a worship leader. He's not a song leader. He's not an entertainer. He's not a performer. And he is teaching our, our praise team to be that, to be a praise team, to be a worship team. It, it, listen, he doesn't care how great the band sounds. If you guys aren't worshiping, it's not been a good day. And I love that. And so many of you guys are really starting to worship personally. You're, you're getting it. You're understanding it. We see it. We feel it. And, and that's, that's our desire and that's God's desire because he needs to be worshiped by each of us personally and individually. Now, on the flip side, every once in a while, I'll talk to somebody about worship, and they'll say something like, yeah, I'm just, I'm just really not into that. Can I honestly say lovingly, we ought to be into that, amen? Because Jesus is certainly deserving of all of our praise and honor and glory and worship, and he needs it personally from every one of us. She worshiped personally. Nobody else did this for her. Not only did she worship personally, but she worshiped outwardly. This was an outward expression. She went publicly. There was a lot of people in the room. You know, her brother, her sister, the disciples were there, as you're going to see in a moment. A lot of people in the room. But she didn't care about anybody else in the room and what they were doing or what they thought. She went over and she began to pour this oil, anoint Jesus, wipe his feet with her hair. She did this outwardly and didn't care about other people's opinions. I mean, how would our worship be different and go to another level if we really came in to worship and we didn't care what anybody else around us thought. That we were more concerned about what God thinks about our worship than the, uh, those around us think about our worship. That it would be okay to clap our hands. That it would be okay to raise our hands, not worrying about what other people say. That it would be okay to sing out loud. Aren't you thankful that the Bible says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord? It doesn't say sing with a beautiful in-tune voice. I'd be in big trouble. I can make noise on the drums for the Lord, but I don't have a beautiful voice. My, my family reminds me of that all the time. You know, I'm singing around the house, and my daughter's like, Dad, please, come on. I'm like, come on. But, but, but not worried, not caring about anybody but Jesus. Worshiping personally, worshiping outwardly. And, and you know, listen... I know, I know sometimes people have different opinion about this. Let me just give you my opinion, all right? I'll tell you what's Bible, and I'll tell you what's my opinion. Although I think my opinion lines up pretty good with the Bible. But anyway, all of us, and, and I'm going to give Gary credit for this, because we were talking about this in the message, and I, I was like, you know, I know I'm going to talk about worship, and I want your thoughts on this, and, and here's what he said, and he was so right. Everybody gets excited about something. There is something that gets every one of us going and excited and causes us to want to clap our hands or yes or jump up and down or whatever we're going to do. There's something that gets every one of us excited. If I say, how about those Broncos? Now, you guys are holding back right now because you know I'm setting you up. <laughs> but last week when we ended the service, Gary said, and go Broncos. And you know what he said to me after church? This was really convicting. He said, there was more of a reaction to that statement than we had in some of the worship. Y'all, it ought not be that way. And listen, there's nothing wrong about getting excited about the Broncos. There's certainly nothing wrong about getting excited about the Dallas Cowboys, but that's another story. <laughs> but, but listen, 
we better get just as excited about worshiping our God. Because he's the one. He's the one that deserves it more than anyone else. She worshiped personally. She worshiped outwardly. And she worshiped extravagantly. And that's a hard word to say. She worshiped extravagantly. Notice what it says in verse 4 and 5. But there were some who were indignant among themselves, this is the disciples, and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they criticized her sharply. Now, I'm glad to some degree they criticized her because they, they, by them criticizing her, they're telling us how much this fragrant oil was worth, 300 denarii. Historians tell us that that would be worth one working man's entire year's salary. One year's worth of salary is how she worshipped in that moment, Mary, to Jesus. And you know what that ought to tell us? It cost her something. And you know, true worship always costs us something. It's a sacrifice. That's one of the reasons why when we worship at the end of our service... We receive our gifts, our offering to the Lord during time of worship because make no mistake about it, church, when we give back to the Lord who's given and blessed us, that is a huge part of our worship. That's not just to support the church and help keep the lights on and pay the bills. That's an act of worship every time you give something to the Lord. And not just your money, your time, your talent, your service, whatever it is. It cost her something and she gave it extravagantly. To Jesus, worth a whole year's salary. I love what David said in First Chronicles twenty-one twenty-four about worshiping the Lord. He said, "I will surely buy it for full price, for I will not take what is is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings with that which costs me what church, nothing." There's always a cost to our worship, and some of but some of the disciples here begin to criticize Mary. They begin to criticize her worship, and I say to that, how dare they criticize her worship? And how dare we criticize anyone else's worship? We should be focused on our own and our worship of the Lord. But yet, people can sometimes be critical of other people's worship. Well, I don't think they ought to be raising their hands. Well, I don't think they ought to be clapping. They certainly ought not be dancing, even though in the Bible it says dance unto the Lord. I mean, would you all be okay if maybe someone was so excited about their worship, they stepped out in the aisle and they actually danced a little bit during the songs? Would that be okay? It ought to be. It's biblical. Now, not if it draws attention to them and away from the Lord. There is a balance to all this. I want to make sure I say that. And let me just say this also to balance all this. We also ought not be critical if someone is maybe not raising their hands and not clapping and maybe they're not singing real loud and not be critical and say, well, they're not worshiping. Maybe they're choosing in that moment to be very quiet and very contemplative and and focusing on the Lord in a quiet way. And that's okay too, amen? Amen. Listen, the bottom line is this. We shouldn't be critical of other people's worship. We should be focusing on our own, that it's personal, that it's outward, that it's extravagant. Now, John's gospel tells us that the ringleader of all this criticism was, guess who? Judas. Judas was the ringleader, and the reason he criticized and said what he did, oh, that could have been, all that money could have been used for the poor. Was he really concerned about the poor? No. He was concerned about having the money for himself because the Bible tells us he was the treasurer. He held the money bag for the disciples. And we know in the end, that's, that's what he betrayed Jesus with, was, was for money. 
He was greedy of money, and so he really wasn't concerned about the money or the poor. He was concerned about himself. And he says in verse 4, notice this, why was this wasted? What Mary did, why was this oil, this fragrant, costly, you know, fragrance wasted? Can I say that our worship is never wasted on Jesus? It's never wasted. Our worship of God is never wasted. The only time our worship is wasted is when it's pointed on anything except God. That's the only way we wasted. This wasn't wasted. And then Jesus decides to chime in. Now he's going to take a side. Is he going to take Mary's side? Is he going to take the disciples and do the side of this worship atmosphere? I think you know what's going to happen. Look at verse 6. And Jesus said, leave her alone. I love that. Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? Why do you criticize her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. Remember, we're just a couple of few days away from his crucifixion. Verse 8, she has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. You know, Jesus has been telling people for a while now, he's going to die and be crucified and be buried. Most of the time, he told the disciples they didn't believe it. They tried to argue with him. Here's Mary, who probably did believe it. She, that's a picture of her faith there. She's like, Jesus has been telling us when he comes to Jerusalem, this is going to happen. That shows her great faith. And she's anointing him for burial. Assuredly, Jesus says, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman, Mary, has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Jesus says, stop criticizing her, leave her alone. And what they called waste, Jesus called worship. And he commended it. And in verse 8, I love this statement. You might underline this in verse 8. When Jesus says, she has done what she could. That's a great question for us. Do we? Mary did what she could. Do we do what we can for Jesus? What would you do? What do we do? Do we do what we can in our worship? Do we, do we do everything that we can for Jesus in our service, in our singing, in our talents, in our witnessing, in our time we give to him, in our giving back to him? I mean, that's a very convicting thing that Jesus says there. Amen? She did what she could. You know, Jesus doesn't ask us to do everything. He equips us differently. He gives us different abilities and talents and spiritual gifts. But we ought to all do what we can for Jesus. Amen? That Jesus would be able to look at us someday at the end of our life and we stand before him and say, Praise God, you did what you could for me as an act of worship. And in verse 9, Jesus says something very interesting. He says, Assuredly, I say, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman, Mary, has done will be told as a memorial to her. What did Jesus mean by that? That from now on, in the whole world, whenever this gospel is preached, that this will be a memorial. We'll remember this story, this beautiful act of worship of Mary. You, you know what he meant by it? It's the year 2015, and guess what we're talking about at the Orchard Church this morning? The story of Mary's worship. And we're saying, remember this. Learn from this. This kind of worship that Mary of Bethany poured out upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're remembering it today. 2,000 years later. What did I say? 2015? I'm way ahead of time right now. 2012, 2015, give or take three years. I saw some of y'all smiling and laughing. I'm going, okay, something just happened. I'm looking at the screen, you know, I'm going, okay, what is it? And then it hit me. 
Y'all know what I meant. But here's the question. What would you do? What do you do when it comes to your worship? Mary is a great example here, the story that Jesus says, don't ever forget of what we should do when it comes to our worship, how she worshiped personally, outwardly, extravagantly. And now we look at verse 10 and 11, and the scene completely changes from what Mary does in this story to what Judas is about to do in this story. Notice verse 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests, the religious leaders, to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. I mean, we flip here. The opposite of Mary's worship is now Judas setting up his betrayal, which we'll see play out in the next couple of weeks um, as soon as we get past friend day next week. We see the brightness of Mary's worship here against the, the backdrop of the darkness of Judas' betrayal. One is beautiful and accepted, and the other is ugly and rejected. And you think about it now, some 2,000 years later, 2,012 years later, when parents are picking names for their children, Mary has always been thought of as a very nice, beautiful biblical name and we know jesus mother's name was mary we have this mary of bethany there's other marys in the bible mary is a is a, is a great name to have not too many judases out there <laughs> never met a judas not a name you probably want to pick for your kid and you see the opposites of these in the story right here in mark mary did for jesus what she could judas got from jesus what he could Mary gave extravagantly to Jesus. Judas is going to sell Jesus on the cheap. The Bible tells us it's going to be for 30 pieces of silver. Now, growing up as a kid, I thought, oh, 30 pieces of silver, that's a lot of money. You know what the history tells us is 30 pieces of silver was the lowest price that you could pay for a slave. That's what Judas is going to betray Jesus for. Mary was criticized. Judas was the critic. Mary is honored and Judas is despised. What would you do? Who are we most like in this story? The worshiper or the betrayer? Now, I know I say that and some of you probably are like, whoa, oh, 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 I'm not a betrayer of Jesus. I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. But listen, church, make no mistake about it. When we do not worship Jesus the way he deserves to be worshiped, we betray Jesus of what he is due. Amen? We do. Because he is deserving of our worship. And the first scene we see here as we begin in chapter 14 of what people would do, we see the scene of in Bethany where he's worshipped. And now we see a different scene. The second we're going to look at today in closing. And that's the scene that takes place in the upper room. In the upper room, betrayed. Where Jesus' betrayal begins. Chapter 14, verse 12. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, to Jesus, where do you want us to go and prepare that we may eat the what, church? The Passover. Because this is what the Jews were doing. This was the time, this was the week, Jesus was a Jew, his disciples were Jewish. Everybody's getting ready for the Passover. That's the whole reason people are in Jerusalem at this time. Thousands and thousands of Jewish people. 
And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Now that would get the disciples' attention because usually it was the women that would take care of the water and the pitchers. To, to see a dude carrying a thing of water, he would have really stuck out. So Jesus says, look for this. Wherever, verse 14, wherever he goes in, whatever house, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then Jesus, or excuse me, then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared, there make ready for us. And what are they getting ready for, church? Say it, the, the Passover meal. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as Jesus had said to them, and they prepared the Passover and in the evening, Jesus came with the twelve. Now, this is not Jesus' first Passover with his disciples. We know Jesus had a three-year, three-and-a-half-year earthly ministry before he went to the cross. This would be at least the third Passover. Some believe maybe even the fourth Passover. He's had at least two other Passovers before with his disciples during the Passover that year. And the pass, but, but, but Jesus is going to make this Passover one never to forget. This is going to be a very unique Passover. This is going to be a special Passover. Now the Passover meal was this once a year meal that had been taking place for 1,300 years. It was, to, it was a memorial and a remembrance and a symbol of the Jews when they, they, had, they came out of Egypt. It was the Exodus. If you know what I'm talking about, say yes. And this was the, the greatest event that had happened to this point in the history of the Jewish people. They had been in bondage for some 400 years, you know, to Pharaoh in Egypt. And God delivers them one night by the blood of a lamb being put over the doorpost by faith in the blood. Then the, the, the angel went over and passed over. And they were freed that night from their bondage, from their slavery, from Pharaoh as their master. And God said, I don't want you ever to forget what I did to deliver you in that event. And so from now on, every year to remember it, you're going to have this Passover meal to symbolize and remember that incredible deliverance from Egypt. And everything about the Passover meal was a picture of that event. They had roasted lamb, the same thing they had the night of the Passover that they killed on the night of the Exodus. They had unleavened bread, the same thing that they had that night of the Exodus. And that was a picture of without sin. And they had bitter herbs in the Passover meal to remind them of the suffering in Egypt when they were in bondage there were cups of wine four cups of wine during the Passover one was a reminder of sanctification being set apart one was explanation of what had happened the deliverance one was a cup of blessing and the other a cup of joy as they celebrated their deliverance out of Egypt that night I really want to encourage you guys right now Mark your calendar for Sunday night Palm Sunday night of 2013 this next one because we always have communion on that night. It's one of the, the two or three times a year we have it. And some of you were with us. Some of you were not. Two years ago we had Jews for Jesus came in. And they taught us. They did a Passover right here on the Passover meal. And they showed how all of it was a picture of Christ. We're doing that again this, this Palm Sunday. You don't want to miss it. And so we'll get into all of that. But Jesus this night is about to change the meaning and symbols of the Passover meal forever. And notice what happens. Now just before he does this, there's a betrayal and then he changes the meanings. Because this, this betrayal happens in the midst of all this meal. 
Verse 18, now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will what? Betray me. One of you, one of my disciples who's eating with me will betray me. And they began, the disciples, to be sorrowful and said to Jesus one by one, Is it I? Is it I? Is it I, Jesus? Another said, Is it I? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish, who's there at the meal. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Jesus announces at this most sacred of meals, the Passover meal, that one of his disciples, one of his own, is going to betray him. Now to give you a little bit of the context and feel of that announcement taking place at that point, what is probably one of the most celebrated, look forward to family meals that we have in our culture Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. It's coming up here in just a couple of months. Thanksgiving. This would be like you gathering the entire family together at Thanksgiving. And just as you're beginning your Thanksgiving meal, somebody stands up and says, I just want to let you all know, one of you is going to betray me. One of my own family members. I mean, this would have been a real downer at this meal. I mean, this would have been a real shocker. I mean, of all the times that Jesus chose to announce that somebody's going to betray him, why now? Why at this meal? Because it shows you the significance of the betrayal. Jesus said in verse 18, one of you, one of my own, one of my disciples. Now, when Jesus said one of you, he didn't go, one of you, Judas. It's not like he went, one of you, you know, this guy right here. Jesus is showing that it's one of his closest, most intimate, dearest Family members, one of them. But he's showing unconditional love for all of them right now. And, and in verse 19, they begin to say, is it I, is it I, who is it to trying to figure it out? And Jesus says a very interesting statement in verse 18. He says, it's one who eats with me. They would have understood the significance of that statement. Because to share the Passover meal together meant that they were a family. They were the most intimate of friends. And it was going to be one of those people. It wasn't one of the religious leaders. It wasn't just a neighbor or co-worker. It was one of his most intimate, dearest friends, part of his family. And Psalm 41.9 gives a prophecy of this. It says, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And I believe also what we see in the scene is Jesus is giving Judas a last opportunity to repent. He hasn't pointed him out yet. He just says, it's one of you. I'm sure Judas is probably like, <gasps> busted. But I think Jesus is showing unconditional love and giving him one last opportunity to repent. I don't think Judas knew it was his last opportunity, but it was. As we're going to read on in the story, during, before this meal is over, Judas is going to get up and go out and betray Jesus. You know what? There's a great spiritual truth in this story. Before someone comes to Christ, sometimes God brings us to our last opportunity to repent. And we don't know when it is. Only God knows. But you know what? We better not play that game. When God gives you an opportunity to get right with him and repent, we should take it. Amen? Because you never know when it might be your last. Judas missed an opportunity. And I want to point out here, there have been different scholars 
you know, viewed what Ju- Judas did and they've interpreted it different ways. Well, it was all part of God's plan. So was it really Judas' fault and all this kind of stuff? And I want to say very boldly this morning, no one forced Judas to betray Jesus. He made a conscious choice and decision. And he was responsible for his actions. Just as we are responsible for our actions. Now, did Jesus know what he was going to do? Of course he did. He's God. Does Jesus know what we're going to do before we do it? Of course he does. But we're still responsible for our actions. We still answer to him how we respond. And my question to you again is, what would you do? What do you do? How do you respond to Jesus? And then Jesus changes the symbols of Passover. In verse 22. And as they were eating the Passover meal, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and he gave it to them and said. Now, hold right there. We're so familiar with this story that we just read through it and we don't stop and think about what really is going on. This was the Passover meal. It was very normal for the the head of the table, the master of the house, the father of the house, to take the bread and, and hold it up and say, you know, this bread we bless, we break it, we share it. I mean, they were... Up to this point, the disciples are like, this is a normal Passover meal. Until Jesus holds that bread up and says these words. Take, eat. This is my body. There would have been a hush just like what's in this room right now. Whoa. We've never heard that before. This is my body? This is a picture of Jesus' body? excuse me, then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, which was normal, it was probably the cup of blessing, he gave it to them and they all drank from it and he said to them, and he changed it forever, this is now my blood. This is not a remembrance anymore of the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. This is a remembrance of the blood that I'm about to shed at this point in just a few hours. This is my blood of the new covenant The new covenant is the new agreement that God is going to forgive sins through the blood of Jesus. Which is shed, and I love this next word, for the disciples? Is that what it says? For a few? For the Jews? No. Which is shed for, say it church, many. Aren't you glad we're part of that many? We're one of the many. Assuredly, I say to you, Jesus says, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine again until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I believe that's a reference to the marriage supper of the Lamb in the future yet to come for us as believers. Jesus that night reinterpreted the symbols of the Passover to be a remembrance of his sacrifice, of his body and his blood to pay for our sins that we might have eternal life. Up until this point, for 1,300 years, the Passover meal was a picture of deliverance from bondage in Egypt for the Jews. But from that point on, it's a picture of our deliverance from our bondage and slavery to sin before coming to Christ. What a beautiful picture. That we're saved by the body and blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Not just any Lamb, the Lamb. The one that John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, said, Behold, check it out, y'all, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. 
And he says, from now on, this bread of this meal is a picture of my body that will be broken for you. It is a, this cup is a picture of my blood that will be spilled out for you. And 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, Paul says, Jesus said, from now on when you have this meal, do it in remembrance, not of the exodus, but Jesus said, do this in remembrance of what, church? Of me and what I'm about to do for all mankind to save them from their sin. The Passover feast was a memorial of a past victory. But Jesus instituted a new supper that would be the memorial of our present victory over sin and death through the body and blood of Jesus. Can I have an amen? amen. What a beautiful picture. But there's another picture that I want to show you that Jesus says here that I saw for the first time in studying this. Verse 22. Notice those first two words that Jesus says about the bread. Verse 22. Let's say them, church. Take eat. Let's say it together. Take, eat. You know in those two words, take, eat, are a beautiful picture of our salvation, how we get saved. Jesus says, take. Jesus noticed, he didn't say, come here disciples, I'm going to shove this bread down your throat. He offered it to them and he said, will you take it? Take. And it's a beautiful reminder. Listen, church, if you don't hear anything else today, hear this. Salvation is a gift that we must take. It is not forced on anyone. It is offered freely. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, from one of my favorite verses, says this. For by grace you have been saved through what, church? Faith. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And when someone offers you a gift, it only becomes yours if you take it. You have to make a decision to take it. And then he not only says take, but he says eat. You must allow it to get inside you. Salvation is a personal decision. No one can eat for you. You must be willing to take it and eat it and receive it yourself. John 1.12 says it this way. But as many as received Jesus, him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Not just believe about him, but believe in him. Put your faith and trust in him. See, no one can worship for you and no one can get saved for you. Amen? You've got to make it personal. You've got to take it and you've got to eat it and allow it to get inside of you. Now listen, before you all start packing up, I filled in my last blank, I'm done. Listen, as I was studying this this week, a thought occurred to me that is occurring to some of you this morning. How can we not, how can we study this passage, see the institution of the Lord's Supper and communion, and not take communion at the end of this? Now, some of you all know the history of this church. We'll celebrate seven years next Sunday. It's going to be an incredible day. 10 a.m., get the time right. Get here early. And in seven years of the history of this church, we've never taken communion, the Lord's Supper, this remembrance meal, on Sunday morning. We've always taken it on Sunday night, a special service, and it's very special. It's, it's very unique just for communion. And we do it, you know, two, three, four times a year. And it's always been on Sunday night. And then I was reading this passage, and I was thinking about this, and I'm thinking, we've never done that. And Jesus said, this would be a good Sunday to do it. And, and, and I really felt the Holy Spirit of God said to me, how can we read about this taking and eating and not take and eat and remember 
what Jesus has just instituted. So you're in for a surprise this morning. We're closing our service with communion. Amen? Now let me, let me just say a couple of things about communion that are very important to us because they're important to God because he put them in the Bible. The, the communion cup and bread is clearly for those who are believers in Jesus Christ. Just like the Passover meal was for the Jews and the Jews only who had been delivered out of Egypt, the Passover meal now, our Passover, Jesus, the communion and Lord's Supper is for those who've been delivered from their sin and have put their faith personally in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, we praise God you're here. We're thrilled you're here. We, we hope that God has spoken to you today. But if you've not made that step, which is personal, no one can make for you, we, would, we don't want to force you in that. We don't want to embarrass you. But listen, we would just ask if you've never made that personal decision to receive Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior just pass the elements right on by and nobody's going to point you out because we're all going to be focusing on our relationship with the Lord amen but we're going to ask that you not partake or better yet why not take and eat why not receive Jesus in your life today and have your first communion with us as a church I'll, that gives me goosebumps just to say, maybe this is your day. I'm going to give you an opportunity in just a moment to invite Jesus Christ in your life as Lord and Savior. And if you do that, man, what a great opportunity to then turn right around and take communion as a remembrance of what Jesus just did to save you. Would you bow your heads with me?